Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another Breakthroughs.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is David Frame. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We've come to talk about your new movie, Dating Amber, which is out now on Amazon Prime for subscribers, and I'm guessing for none, they can buy it by VOD as well. I Actually, no, I don't think they can. It's an Amazon Prime original um, in the UK and Ireland, so it's it's... It's first streaming uh, for subscribers. I'm, I actually don't, like, it's not going to be available on any other platforms. And I don't know if you can pay to rent it on Amazon Prime or not. I actually, I have, so I have none of that information because I'm, I'm stupid. Um, but if you have, if you have Prime, you can watch it. And if you don't have Prime, you can get a free trial and watch it and then cancel your trial. <laughs> I, I don't care. <laughs> now, you also, you also uh, made the film The Cured. Which, as I was yes. saying while we're in the locker room sorting out this podcast, couldn't have been a more magnificent, a compar- like an opposite of type of films. Um, and it made me, it made me think of Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote Ghost, mm-hmm. and he wrote Jacob's yeah. Ladder, which I think people will agree are two extremes of uh, film genre. They are. They're very, very different. Um, I mean, it's a total one eighty. Um, uh, for 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 filmmaking and I, I kind of wanted it to be um i think you know i think when i made the cured i i, I tried to make uh beards earlier and it just didn't happen or sorry dating amber which used to be called beards earlier and it just didn't happen um, and then the cured got legs but the intention was always to go back and make it as my second feature as soon as i could because it was so personal and i was so desperate to make it and, and once you make a horror film you just get offered horror films which is obviously a lovely position to be in, but you just get stuck in a nobody's con- nobody's considering you for their, you know, their period dramas or anything. So I was really desperate to kind of get myself out of that box. I love horror films and I want to continue making them in some in the future. But just the idea that I'd just be that horror a horror film director kind of irked me a little. For those that don't know, so the cured is a a kind of post pandemic sort of infection story. In, on the lines, on the sort of somewhere between, uh, sort of in the realm of Twenty Eight Days, but after Twenty Eight Days is, is cured. As a horror fan myself, it's it's always it's always gratifying to see a new take on the zombie subgenre of horror. You take us into the head of the personal, and the idea of knowing you've done it after you've cured is a horrifying thought. Well, I think that was what was the for me what was the actual interesting bit part. You know, the idea of having. A cure to the uh, this kind of zombie-like affection was was fascinating to explore that. But the, what would happen if they remembered what they did and the trauma and and questions that would arise from that? And um, so that was really the starting point for me. To explain why I'm saying this is such a such a, a a difference in film, do you want to give people a brief synopsis as to what Dating Amber's all about so they can go and check it out? 
Yeah, of course. So Dating Amber is a comedy drama. It's set in the 90s in a rural town in Ireland. It's about two teenagers, Eddie and Amber, who are both gay. And they decide to fake a relationship in order to stop all the speculation and taunts around them. So it's a it's kind of a, a an unusual romantic comedy about these two um, young adults who um, form this beautiful bond and kind of discover who they are through that friendship. And it is a beautiful film. And I keep telling anyone that I, that will listen to me, if you've got a heart, you will love this film. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say you're dead inside if you don't cry, but I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm implying it. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, yeah, it's definitely very emotive. Like, it, I think it's it's very very funny, and I do definitely think we, you know, it's very moving in parts. I think it's a very sweet film, and I, you know, it's very. It's quite autobiographical. I grew up in the town in which we shot the film, and mm. you know, I, I very much struggled coming out, and so it was very much so wanting to frame that experience in a kind of a comedy that you don't often see it in. You know, I think um, when you're a kid, you're so used to see. If you're gay, you're so used to seeing yourself being persecuted or dying of AIDS on screen, and I just wanted to. And that's they're really valuable, important films. But if that's the only way you see yourself, it's such a narrow prism to see your future and i just always wanted to see that joyous fun version of that experience that does exist even in the pain it does exist and you know when i came to make it you know um tragedy plus time equals comedy i was ready to have a have a laugh with it now and you can probably tell from accent i'm from oh maybe not but i'm from northwest of england which obviously shares a somewhat somewhat affinity with uh with with ireland um i'm, I'm literally a half and half Dad's side Liverpool, mum's side Manchester, um, and uh, a whole Irish side came over to Liverpool. And there's a sense of humour in the northwest that I think is is has has, has had a the, the Irish influence coming into that region, which is like almost like a kind of a stoicism, a put up and shut up, but also gallows humour in the extreme about the most tragic circumstances can be the most funniest thing in the world. Absolutely, and I think it's so true to life. I mean, and I think you know. Dating Amber is, it's obviously set in Kildare in Ireland, but I think you could set it anywhere in the UK or or America. I think it's a very universal story. And I that I think anybody who feels like they're a little lost can identify with. Um, you know, it's about these, you know, these kids who need to leave or want to escape to discover themselves. And I think we all have that urge when we're young. Context-wise, you've, you've set it in 95, which I'm guessing is to get closer to a reflection of your own experiences. But also... In, in Ireland itself, the the law regarding homosexuality had only recently changed, hadn't it? Yeah, yeah. So in 93, um, they, homosexuality was decriminalised, which is like, what, 40 years or 30 years after it was in the UK. And so it was a very, so you weren't, these kids didn't grow up not just feeling kind of taboo they were actually illegal and um i think that really much framed it frames kind of a lot of how i saw myself as a young person and growing up in a very catholic country at that time it, it very much so um skews your view of things um, and then in 95 we had the a, a divorce referendum so divorce just came in then and it just barely passed and i always feel like that period is kind of like the beginning of liberalization for ireland you know since then we've had these incredible referendums with marriage equality and uh, repeal the eighth and the gender recognition act which are incredible and i'm so proud of how far we've come 
but that kind of liberalisation started much later in Ireland than it did in other Western. Yeah, because I, I, I guests I've had on before, I've had, I, I had um, the um, the writer uh, David McGillifray on, who mm. who who much older than you and I grew grew up during during a time when homosexuality in Britain was illegal, and I talked to him about the notion of it, and I remember. And he, and he basically, he was sort of saying you kind of just became conditioned to not thinking you are. Yeah. Despite knowing he was attracted to men, he talked about going, yeah, but I'm not one of them fairies. Yeah, and I think you kind of do just, you know, I I was the same, and I think it's it's evident in Eddie, in the, in the character in, in Dating Amber, that he's just so resigned to living a closeted life and so so far into the closet and into denial there's even a point in the script where he thinks they can turn this unusual arrangement into something real which is really sad um i think that's the way it is the way it is for so many young gay people back then and even like even now i think we like to pat ourselves on the back about how far we've come but we have but i mean coming out is always a complicated thing we still grew up in a straight world you know you you know homophobic bullying is on the rise and particularly in non-urban areas so it's still tricky for people to come to terms with who you are and to make that leap and to make that decision that i'm going to you know come out um it's a big thing and i think we we underestimate sometimes how big it can be because because we have come a long way and we obviously live in a far more um kind world in many ways yeah no it's and also as 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 teenagers as they are, you're just trying to you're trying to compute whatever normal is, whatever whatever being an adult is, and you're trying to prepare yourself. And if if the messages you're being sent are people are frowning on what you feel naturally, then you go, okay, I'll I'll not be that then because that's obviously not normal, which is a horrendous state of affairs for anyone to go through. And, and teenagers are just teenagers are generally, I think, you know, they're just arseholes. I mean, I'm pretty sure, like, you know, I think. We have a wonderful secondary cast in this film. It's an amazing ensemble. And they're really funny, all the kids around them. But I'm pretty sure in a couple of years' time, they'll be very lovely, enlightened people. Just at this moment in time, in, you know, in school, they're a little insensitive. And, and they don't even know the harm of what they're saying. And, you know, I think that's often the way is it's not, it isn't intentional persecution. It's very often just, oh, I was having a laugh. And I think that's the way it is. And I think that's where very often the most damaging um, abuse comes from whether you're gay or not. It's stuff that people don't mean to be as hurtful as it is, but you can take it really in a really difficult way. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, the standout there in your, in your cast is uh, is Ian O'Reilly as Kev. He's amazing. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Uh, he's a comedy genius, and he's actually just a he's a brilliant actor. But yeah, he plays this kind of school friend slash bully. And I think, like a lot of people, your school friend slash bully is a blurred line. Oh no, um, no, completely and, relate to it. Yeah. And um, he's just he's got some amazing one liners. He comes out with some brilliant stuff. Um, And then also he has a bit of redemption in the film. I think, you know, he's you know, he's got his own little subplot going on with with another girl, I think, which I love. Um, Yeah, he's great. I mean, and I think my all my anxiety with this film was really just wrapped up in the casting. It was getting the right, not just the right Eddie and Amber, which was the biggest part, but getting all those secondary that secondary cast right. So all those different jokes landed because I think in the wrong hands they could just come off as mean or nasty or you know just fall like a lead balloon and I think when you have people like Ian and 
um, Emma Willison and Estate of Blake and uh, Evan O'Connor who plays the brilliant young, young brother Jack. When you have those kind of kids and actors, they just give a three dimensionality to the characters and they just make what's on the page even funnier. Um, and I just thought it was it was it kind of elevates the film so much. I mean, things just ended up being funnier than I thought they'd be and more moving than I thought it'd be. And those secondary roles ended up being way more sympathetic than I. No, without a doubt. I think you I think you portray the um the sort of Lord of the Flies aspect of a teenage playground with a whole load of sympathy because while on the surface it's aggression, but underneath it's all everyone's insecure and that's all they're trying to hide is we're all trying to not be the one bullied. So get your punch in first, which is frightening. Yeah, and no, I think that's quite I mean, I think the you know, the honesty is messy. I think there's no there is no clear lines. Um, and I think very often in films, particularly when you're dealing with queer characters, it's all very black and white. And I just, you know, that's, it's not, it wasn't my truth. It wasn't kind of my experience. I wanted to bring that experience to the screen in a way that I haven't seen before. So as, 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 as from a writing point of view, how, how did you find sort of computing your own, your own experiences into yeah. a drama? Because, you know, in a way, in many senses, what I did in my summer holidays is never as exciting as it was for you when you when you try and dramatize when you try and write a script yeah, about yeah. it. So, in a sense, yeah. there's a point where you've got to turn it into drama as well as speak to the truth that you want to tell. How did you find that experience? Yeah. Um, it was, it was, it wasn't. I think we could, when I came to write it, I had a lot of perspective on that. I don't think I could have written it much earlier than I did, just because, <clears throat> like, so basically, the cured. Is basically my attempts to deal with that when I was still a very angry man and dealing with that inner monster. And I was just, I was depressed and angry. And I think just a few years later, having, you know, that distance and being more comfortable with myself, you realize you can see the, you can see all the warmth and comedy that existed at the point at that time. And I was just about bringing that to the screen. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's just, I, I, where I grew up, felt quite magical in a way with and you know I think that experience was so universal I knew it would kind of appeal to a, a, some audience um and the writing experience was really fun it was actually probably my funnest uh, writing experience I've had it, it kind of came together very quickly and you know it, it flowed really quickly um you know it didn't go through huge amounts of rewrites which you know they can do and I've had that um and I think I was very conscious that to withhold the, those final polishes until I had the cast and I was hearing it out loud and I knew um, what was what was working. I mean, I had a lot of anxiety about making sure that the jokes were really funny. I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you make a comedy and you're not getting the laughs, it's horrible. Um, so I was really, you know, we did a lot of rehearsals and we worked really hard to make sure that every joke was landing in the room and if it wasn't landing why and how do we change it so and even on the day we kept adding jokes and um so i think for me the hard part was just making sure that if i'm going to make a if i'm going to tell people i'm making a comedy it has to be really fecking funny <laughs> and that was kind of my big anxiety as a writer and a director uh was just you know i knew i could hit the emotional beats and frankly i think the emotional beats as a filmmaker are harder are, are easier to get comedy's really hard you know it's really hard. i i just find they always what is it i mean we had a really fun time making this and it was really fun and i i, I you know but i think people underestimate how hard it is to get a laugh out of people 
it's a hard thing to do. Um, and to get several laughs is, you know, <clears throat> you know, it's it's tricky. I think comedy is much harder than drama, as far as I'm concerned. You're not the you're not the first director to tell me that on this podcast. It is a it is a yeah. I think it's it's a it's a skill, and I think it's the same with acting. Some people have it, and some people don't. I think, you know, we did rehear we did so many auditions for this, and some brilliant actors just couldn't deliver the lines in a funny way. You know, they just didn't have that. And there was nothing you could do to get it. They just didn't have that natural skill for it. And they're brilliant actors who will probably have brilliant careers, but they just weren't right in a comedic role. And I, I think it's just, I, I just think it's a really underappreciated skill, which I know every comedian and every uh, comedy director and writer says all the time. And, you know, we're always talking about how they don't get the the plaudits and stuff they deserve but it is it, it's there's almost a it's not a science but there's just something so specific about making a joke land well i i, I was lucky enough to interview peter Kay at the start of his of his trajectory and he he talked a lot about some of the difficulties he had and he would having to explain why a red coat is funnier than a blue coat it's not just a coat and while that might seem absurd in the abstract he knows what he's trying to deliver yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. So I had a lot of kind of just nervousness about like <laughs> making, and also there's that thing: if you're making a drama, if this, if a room is silent, you you can pretend it's working. But if you're making a comedy and it isn't full of laughter, you failed. You can you can you can fool yourself that your drama was successful because it was silent, but you can't you can't say that was a great comedy screening. Nobody laughed. Like you can't do that. You, you have, it, it's a very instinctive reaction you get. And if you don't get that very instinctive reaction, like with a horror film, if you don't get the, the, the shocks, it's not working, you know? Um, <clears throat> so there's no kind of, and I think that's the thing. It's not like you can't academically appreciate a comedy in the same way you can kind of academically appreciate a slow drama. Um, you know, you can't say that was really Tarkovsky-esque. You know, you can't do that. It's just so. So in know. that, because obviously the the, the storyline is obviously about two people struggling with their their ability to come out in a world that doesn't want to see them come out in a way more than it is about they do or they don't. Um, but equally, in in Eddie's life, there is the family expectation of of joining the army. Now that as 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 a storyline and as a as a as a as an idea in Ireland, that was that was new to me. The idea of Living in a small town where I can, I mean, again, that's quite a universal thing, isn't it? I think um, the idea of what opportunities have you got in a small town? Well, a safe one is join the army. I mean, was that, is that, is that a real comment on, on, on what, what, what mid nineties Ireland would have been like for a, a rural kid? It, so I think it's, it, yeah, but I think it's very specific to where I grew up. So where I grew up was a kind of barracks town. So it was an active military town and my dad was in the army. So you're kind of growing up, surrounded by like tanks and soldiers training and it's a very weird it's like a regular town that's been occupied it's very weird and it's kind of cool when you're a kid and i think for myself and my brother my sister at at different points we all wanted to join the army and be like our dad and then when i was about kind of 13 14 i realized it wasn't for me um or, or yeah or rather i wasn't cut out for it um you know, but I think it is that thing, and I think it's such a hyper masculine environment as well to grow up in, particularly when you're when you're a queer kid. You know, the older you get, the more difficult that becomes. So it was a very personal that element was quite personal. The idea of, and also I wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those. I think it was very. I think we're very used to these films where the 
the kid is quite gifted and he can go on to do whatever, go to art college. I wasn't one. I was an underachieving kid because I was so struggling. So like I was getting D's and C's. I wasn't like, oh, it's fine. I'll just get a scholarship to Trinity. It's like that wasn't it was kind of like the army was it or it was nothing or, you know, and I scraped points for college eventually. But like I'm not it wasn't like I was Amber in the story. Uh, the other lead is very. Is, is very smart and has options and studies and Eddie just doesn't. So the army feels like his only option. And I think that's something we don't see very often. I mean, um, I think that's the interesting chemistry, isn't it? That clearly, even before the film started, the character of Amber has decided when she can, she's getting out. And obviously she's had, a, she's had an ongoing plan. Whereas Eddie's character, as, uh, as the exact opposite, has accepted his lot, no matter how much he might make him unhappy. Yeah, and I think that's it. I mean, when I, I was always in awe of, I, I had to go away to Kuwait, and I think that's true for a lot of queer kids, particularly back then. Um, but I was always in awe of those people who had the strength to do it where they were and to, you know, to, you know, um, come out in Ireland or in their town. Um, and, you know, they were, you know, champions. And I think for this, the, the kind of trajectory for these actors is, Fionn realising he needs to, Eddie realising he needs to go away and kind of escape that. But for Amber, it was about realising that she can be who she is, where she is, and, you know, seeing a, a future where she is um, and not having to run away. Um, so it was kind of a nice kind of, it's almost like they swap plans. You mentioned about the about the casting, obviously, so we, we, should, we should probably focus on the two, the two main ones. So Fionn O'Shea and uh, Lola Pettigrew, who play Eddie and Amber. Um, what was the what was your process like then getting them and obviously in particular casting Eddie if that's if that's you imagining you how do you how do you cast yourself I, I mean I yeah it wasn't I wasn't like he's not my height um, but um, yeah it was a long casting we had a very long casting process in Ireland um, and England um, but our casting director Louise Kylie is amazing who also worked on my last feature and she's got a real skill for finding young actors. Um, so we got like hundreds of tapes and saw some absolutely brilliant actors and everything. But it, w once we got Fionn and Lola's tapes, I just knew they were quite special. Um, for me, it all came down to their chemistry. And then we kind of whittled it down to four actors per role and brought them in for chemistry reads. So we just basically swapped them in and out. And we had each person. So we had like Fionn read with all the other girls. We had Lola read. With, and then so we interconnected all of them to see what the best combination was. And it was just, and they were all great actors, actually, but it was just, there was real lightning in a bottle when we got Fiona and Lola doing their read together. They were just so good. Um, and I knew in, in, instantly we found her, Eddie and Amber. Um, Is that a process you've tried before, that idea? No, no. Um, I was just really conscious that this film doesn't work if you don't buy their chemistry. So, you know, and we had some great actors where it was like, it doesn't matter how good they are if they don't have that chemistry with the other actors. And what was really fascinating is how the chemistry changed, you know, with each, with each, with each, with each of those dynamics. So Fionn with a different, one of the different girls, it was still really good, but it just wasn't the same. And it would have been, you know, I was looking at those tapes going, it'd be such a different film if it was that combination or that combination, you know, possibly a very good film, but a very different film and not the film I wanted. Um, <clears throat> but actually, I have to say, what was really amazing from that process is from that very wide casting we did and finding all these brilliant actors, we so we found our Eddie and Amber, but from those selected few, we also found Kev, 
who played Ian O'Reilly. He got down to the last four and I just loved him so much and I couldn't think of not having him in the film. We found Astasia, Emma, Lady Tracy Janet. We found um, Amber's girlfriend, Sarah, played by the brilliant um, Lauren Canny. So we ended up from that kind of, because we did such a wide casting, we ended up kind of just casting all the teenage roles from that that pop, which was kind of great. So we didn't have to do all these other separate casts. He was like, look, she was great. She's not Amber, but she's brilliant as Tracy or, you know. So that was, that that was, was a that. complete unintended consequence of the process. A completely unintended consequence. I think you, you when you're finding you know there was such a uh, kind of a richness of talent and when you when you have that there's you know it's just like give them those roles um and, you know and i you know like i know when anastasia walked in i was like god that's tracy or you know she was perfect or janet sorry um so yeah so that that was that was brilliant um and it was a really lovely process and then once we cast it about six months before we actually shot it um and so basically Lola, Fiona, myself had a huge amount of rehearsal, like weekly rehearsal. And for me, that was all about making sure they become friends. It was, you know, we ran a lot, we ran it and we had lunches and got to know each other. And but for me, it was all about just making sure they they build that relationship. And and what was kind of amazing and unexpected was how they became like they're now best friends, like they're quarantining together, they're you know, they're inseparable. So by the time we got to set, they were already best friends and living in each other's pockets. So we got, we, you know, we got to the film, you know, the, the, you know, Fiona always says you very often get to the end of a shoot wishing you had the bond at the end, that, at the start. You're wishing that, you know, you had that connection that you have over the shoot at the start of the shoot. And we had that with them. They were just like so tight. And so it's, it, so we had just a perfect chemistry between them um, for, for the shoot. And that friendship just kind of sings and you can tell they love each other off screen as well as on screen. Um, and that's why I think the film works. It is kind of down to them. Seeing that obviously flourish, which is obviously must have been really rewarding for you. What What do you think that? Um, let's Let's start with him. Him first. Um, mm. What do you think he brought to Eddie that you couldn't have expected when you wrote it on the page? I don't. Uh, he's just so good. About, like I think he's a superstar. Um, I think they both are actually, but he's just so. He's really funny, and I don't think he's done that kind of comedy before. But he was so funny. And can, can you think so... of a specific example, like when you were, like during the shoot, where you were like, "God, I wouldn't have thought of doing that," but that is that's that's a great. I, I mean, they did like they they did some amazing um, kind of. I always gave him a bit of freedom to do a bit of ad living, you know, and and stuff. I think he just like so. There's that bit at the sex wall where they're like big gay wall. That whole scene, which is my favorite. Um, most of that little bit at the end was ad-libbing between them. And it was just such a back and forth. Um, that, But I think he's just got this vulnerability and, you know, you can't but empathise with him, I think, on screen. He's got such a gorgeous face and he's, you know, he's just so, he's just so great. He's got, it's a, it is a real je ne sais quoi kind of thing. I don't know what he had, but it's a star quality. And the same with Lola. I think she's, I always think Lola reminds me of like a really young Judy Walters. She's just got this, She's just, she's just got so much life and energy on screen and she's so expressive and, and brilliant and funny and she's quite like Amber. She's very, you know, opinionated and and um, in the best sense, loud in the best sense. Um, and what their, their dynamic became very much so Amber and Eddie's. Um, like they are, you know, he's a little shyer and quieter 
uh, you know, they, you know, he just got his first tattoo. They got tattoos of each other. It's ridiculous. <laughs> he he got he got like a tiny uh, A on his ankle for Amber, and she got a tiny E on hers for Edgy. It's their character names, which is like his first and last tattoo. But like they're just you can't. It's hard to describe how bonded they've become. Um, and yeah, and they're just you know, and the dynamic is so like the characters. So the line between Fiona Lola and Eddie and Amber began to blur in the best possible way. Um, yeah, it was it was. Oh, it was just great. <laughs> and 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 is is the whole idea of a of a of a gay boy and a lesbian girl pretending a relationship to sort of see themselves through the final the final misery of school, as it were, from a kind of sexual identity point of view? Is that it's not something I've ever seen before in film? Is that is that a is that a common story with people that find each other? It actually, what's been really mad is um, so. I mean, it it, it derived from. I had a friend in school who later came out to be a lesbian and I obviously came out to be gay. And it was, that's the thing of, oh God, if we had done this, it would have made our lives so much easier. But what's been so funny is the response for the film has been massively wonderful online, but the amount of people who are tweeting, oh my God, this is me and this person, or this is me and this person. So it has been, um, it, apparently it, it's a huge thing. I mean, I know it is a huge thing in other countries still, and back in the day it was, but it is a, like the idea of having a beard, you know, it exists as a term for a reason, it is a big cultural thing. Um, and I think particularly in those years, it does make your life easier. So it, while, you know, it was wish fulfillment for me, but actually it does seem like it's really singing, ringing through for a lot of queer, which is, which is cool. <laughs> From an aesthetic point of view, there was, there was um, your, your, your lovely mixing of the, the burgundy school outfit and the mustard flashes. Um, the rucksack and the and his coat, but then I I not, obviously I'm not obviously at all, but I, I did watch the Cured after I'd seen Dating Amber, and your main man's got a mustard uh, hoodie on for the first part of that movie. What, yeah, what, what's yeah. What, is, is this is this a color that you're you're trying to get into in your yeah, psyche? Yeah, mustard and kind of um, burgundy are just nice. I think they're nice cinematic colors. Um, you know, and there isn't much there isn't much aesthetic overlap between the two films. I mean, you know, obviously the cure is quite dark, and you know, it, it's a very different thing um, between them. But yeah, those kind of colors, I think, I think just I love. Um, and I think with this, with with <clears throat> dating Amber, I think we myself and my amazing DP Rory O'Brien. Um, and my my production designer Emma Lowney and my costume person Joan McCleary. Basically, we became this little unit whereby I wanted to make sure there was a constant communication between all of us. So we had our references. We made sure when a color, when with the mustard was in the costume, it wouldn't be in the set. When it was in the set, it wouldn't be in the costume. We'd always make sure that there was this this really good overlap. So we had a really strong palette throughout the film. And Joan and and Emma and her team worked really hard to make sure that there was this constant communication, like what hoodie you're using today. Okay, I won't put that on the wall or vice versa, which was kind of great. Um, so there's a real... Oh, it really works. Think, it really works. Yeah, and I think because I didn't necessarily have that in my last film. And I think it was just a lesson whereby you need that. I think you you're, you and your HODs have to become a unit. And it's not just you talking to them. They have to talk to each other. You know, so we all had the same office and we all worked really hard. And we were all like, you know, had our boards up and we just worked out kind of the perfect combinations between costume and and design. Uh, so, it, you know, all the, the, the kind of the primary colours of the film 
are always evident throughout the film. So they're always in, in a shot, just not always in the same place, um, which are, which was great. And I think, our, you know, we had lots of references like like Lisa Farty, the photographer, that kind of Kodachrome warmth that she has in her 90s photos. We loved and That was a big reference for me and uh, Rory. And then it became a big reference for the production designer, Emma. Um, and like Martin Parr and just making it feel, I wanted to make it feel like I was looking back at my own family photos from the 80s and 90s. I was going to say those two colours against the emerald green of what is your natural island backdrop really work, don't they, as, as contrast just out in, the, out, in the, out in the open, as it were? I think it does. And I think, you know, I think first the goal was you wanted to film to feel like you're looking at a photo album, like you're flicking through, you know, a memory, a memory book. Um, and, you know, back in the day when you took photos, it was in good weather because that's when you had the camera out, you know, and thankful, you know, so we wanted it to feel like it was warm and sunny all the time, which isn't necessarily truthful. But when you're but in a recollection, that's how it is. And I wanted to feel like that, like it was a recollection. Um, and but yeah, so that was kind of always the the goal was to make it feel like you're 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 looking at a memory and you're looking at old photos of their life. Um, and thankfully we got that. And thankfully we got the weather for that as well. I, was, well. I grew up in the northwest of England, like I say, so I, I, I could tell you got the good days. We got we got, I don't know how it happened. We got all the good days. Um, like we were expecting a lot of rain because it's Ireland. But we only ended up having one day of rain and it was a day that we had scripted rain, which is just weird. Like we're never get that's never the happened. The gods were smiling on you. Yeah, one of them. I mean, I don't know why, because they should hate me. But yeah, yeah. So we got really lucky with the weather and, and the, the place and just make I wanted to feel in the best possible sense nostalgic. I wanted to feel that kind of you know, and then you know, the references being like um like film like so photographers, Lisa Fardy and Martin Parr were big references, but then um in terms of films, things like Harold and Maud, which have those kind of mustard colours and those kind of, they you do, know. Yeah. Um, they were real references. And yeah, just making it feel a bit, making it feel like a film from the 90s or older, you know, um, and making it feel like those old photos. And weirdly, and this might sound like a crass comparison, but in a way, by by committing yourself to those sort of choices, it's it's like forming a band. It's like, this is our uniform, literally, you know. And so the film plays that out all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it was just that thing of when you when you have a memory, you do kind of put a color block on it, you know. You do. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, absolutely. And I, like I was, I was really blessed with the HODs we had. The whole it was a, an amazing team, and everyone worked super hard. I think everyone, you know, myself and Emma are pretty much the same age. Rory's just slightly older. We all had the same kind of warmth and recollection and, and memory of that time. And I think so. I think we all brought something to it. Um, but yeah, we got like we. I just got very lucky with the team I had. You know, I think obviously film is. I don't think we. I don't think we talk about enough about how much of a collaborative art it is. You know, I think I think the auteur myth is a bit of a myth sometimes, and and this one was a real collaboration. I think it became a real passion project for everyone involved, which is the best compliment I think you can get is when everyone's really taking ownership of it. Yeah, everyone's put like, almost like a kind of collegiate approach in the end. Everyone's yeah, it's really nice. Obviously, a coming-of-age film is, 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 is about those intimate moments, is about those sort of heightened emotions. But 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 also, and obviously that means you, you situate a lot of it sort of in places where you can feel that. But in comparison, I imagine Visit Island will see your film and go, thanks for that, David. That is absolutely bloody stunning what you've done. 
you and Rory in terms of... Show, I mean, it's genuine majesty that you're showing off. When I was a kid, you didn't appreciate it. But actually, where I grew up, the Cara Plains, like it's one of the biggest open plains in Europe. And it's stunning. And I don't think we... It's, it's you know, it's very often in Ireland, it's one of those places you drive past but you don't drive through or stop at you know it's just that way to another place but it's actually really beautiful and i think being able to bring that to the screen was always a big ambition of mine and because you can you're constantly explaining how stunning it is how beautiful the sky is or how you know amazing those 1900 red bricks of the barracks are but nobody believes you and now it's on screen so they have to believe me um but i did yeah but i did want to show it in that light i didn't want to show it in its in how and how, and how lovely it is um, and then it's you know it's also we show all it's covered in sheep shit and I keep saying it's my love letter to growing up there and it's my love letter to all those kids who needed to escape and so I wanted to you know I wanted it to feel like it was that it was a love letter yeah because if, you, if your escape is there's just open land that's just as containing whereas if you like I grew up in Manchester so if I went to Manchester there was all those nooks and crannies to, 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 to explore where you could find yourself somewhere. But if you only live in a town with nothing, nothing, all that surrounds you is big green, then that's hard, isn't it? Yeah. And we have the kids go to Dublin and they experience the, 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 they kind of begin to have kind of baby steps into the nightlife. But I think what, what, what petrified me as a kid is Dublin is, Ireland is tiny and Dublin is a tiny city. And <clears throat> you're always going to bump into somebody you know. So the idea, if you want to be closeted, you know, the idea of just driving up the road doesn't really work. You can't, you know, and, he, and even in, this, in the film, we kind of explore that where he kind of, he can't really even, even in Dublin, he's going to meet people from Kildare and he can't kind of truly be himself. And that's why he has to go to England. Um, but that's, I think there, when you're, you need something bigger and anonymous, like a London or a Manchester, I think, to when you're that young and you need to kind of find yourself and um, he just can't do it in Ireland because Ireland, well, he can't. Ireland is tiny. I, I thought that was, I mean, amongst obviously the comedy, which which we talked about earlier, the, obviously you've got, you've got some big emotional beats in there as well as funny, as very funny moments. And, and the, um, it, it felt, I mean, this is a little tiny spoiler in terms of, in terms of the film, but, but uh, when Eddie and, um, and Amber go to the, to the gay bar and the, the drag act is sing, the drag act is singing, and he hugs the, the drag artist, and it's just this. It's like, it's like it, the, the film just stops almost, as it were. And let's, but equally, it's almost like a dream at the same time. It is. I know exactly. I wanted that to feel like a dream sequence. I wanted that. I just, I just think it's such a beautiful sequence. And and you know, it's one. We shot it in actually one one minute camera move. So they move through the whole place, and then he walks up to the. Uh, Johnny Wee, the drag queen, and you know, says, Do you know me? and hugs her, and he's all he's pissed off his nut. Um, so that's all one sequence, and then we just break it at a point to go back to the girls. Um, but um, yeah, it's it was one beautiful, and I just wanted it to feel like it wanted to feel like a gay heaven. <laughs> I wanted it to feel like, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a straight man, but, it, but even watching it, you could yeah. see. What yeah. heartbreak and revelation was happening all at the same time? Then I know, and look, that like it was. I think I think Rory outdid himself there and his team in terms of how it looked. But I mean that that really does. And I think Johnny Wu was extraordinary singing that beautiful Brenda Lee song or singing it. But you know that um, 
that really is just in in Ed Thun's face and his performance. You can just feel what it is for him, and that's just about him. Like you could, you know, the reality is you could shoot that on a camera phone, and it, it with his face, it would work. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, that's I think my favorite, and that was one of those scenes that you have to like. I I had the best team on this film in terms of producers and financiers and everything, but it's one of those scenes that you kind of in your and the cut room you have to fight for. And everyone was like, well, you don't need it, David. Like, no, but you do need it. Like, this is what it's doing. And it's one of those scenes where, like, you know, you kind of you kind of have to just put your foot down a little bit. And there was a lot of, like, David, is it a bit long? Do you need that? Like, you're kind of just becoming a child, kind of jumping up Oh, wow, going, David, that's amazing to learn. Because to yeah. me, that was like, to me, that was the emotional heart of the movie. Was that, was that two minutes or so? <clears throat> Me too. Um, but I think, you know, you have to imagine you're looking at it in an offline, you know, with temp music, you know, and and I think sometimes you don't, I, like, I, myself and my editor, Joe, who was incredible, we knew that was special and everyone did, but sometimes you, uh, it's not evident to everybody and they need to have those test screenings to, you know, to work it. And For filmmakers listening in then with that, who might come and face that challenge, in the future yeah. i mean obviously apart from apart from obviously uh arg strenuously arguing in your corner what advice would you give to people to sort of help him win the argument that these 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 moments you understand because you've you've designed it to do something what's what's kind of the way to win people over with that kind of thing where it's not self-evident to them it's it's a really tricky one i think with this so with the cured i mean i guess this goes quite personal but with the cured, when I got the post production, it was a very difficult. The sheet was fine, but the whole process of financing everything was very difficult. <clears throat> and you know, I had to do the the edit in Belfast, quite isolated on my own, and I had a really bad back injury, and so I felt I ended up getting into a quite a dark place. And so I wasn't necessarily when everyone is saying one thing to you, you end up kind of just doubting yourself and. Um, and kind of ending up, like, maybe I'll take that joke out. Because like, like with The Cured, I'm really proud of the film. There's one or two jokes I would like to be in it. But then if everyone's saying it's not in keeping with the film, but you, you know, and you know it is, and you don't do it, it's still on you. Um, you could put your foot down. But I think what I learned with this film is I made sure that, I made sure I did the post-production in London so I could live at home. So I would have a support network and I was I, I would be looking after myself and I was in a really healthy state of mind. So when those battles occurred and they always occur and they come, they come from a good place. Everyone giving those notes wants the film to be best. And just so we don't necessarily agree that that is at that point. But I wanted to make sure that I had this I had the the healthy frame of mind to fight my corner. Um, so I knew from past experience I wasn't always in that position you know, personally. And so with this film, I just made sure that I was looking after myself um, during that whole process. So I, you know, I wouldn't doubt myself when those things happened. And I knew those things would always happen. And I knew that, no, this is, you know, I knew not to, yeah, I knew not to doubt myself. And thankfully I had a great support with, you know, Joe, my editor, and we always were in sync. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think my my lesson with this film and it's my lesson going forward and my lesson giving out is to make sure you look at you're kind to yourself and you look after yourself because it's only when you're in your own strong state of mind that you can fight your corner. 
um, because it's very it's very easy to doubt yourself when everyone is saying something else and you you only you know what's best for your film only you know what's right for your film and you only you know the part of your film and you just need to be in a position where you can fight it where you can you know not fight it but just date it um and I, I just made sure with this film that um, it was so personal. I didn't, I wasn't, wasn't willing to take a risk that it wouldn't be everything I wanted it to be. So I, you know, I, I made certain stipulations um, about things like, you know, I can't be isolated for the eight months again. You know, I can't, you know, that's not good for me. And I need to make sure I have friends and family around me during the editing, the offline editing process, because that's the best way we're going to get the best edit. And I think that 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 was a big learning curve for me because you I think you condition yourself in filmmaking to be like you have to suffer for your art. It's just a part of it, and you just have to. And I hate that. It's such a abusive myth. And actually, you don't. And the best films come from when you are strong and healthy and you're having fun. So yeah. So I that would be my advice. Just look after yourself, and then your film will be as good as. No, that's sound. That is sound advice. Sharon Horgan and Barry Ward are playing your parents. Ledge bags, yeah. Yeah, I love them. A, how, what's it like to cast, cast the imaginary version of your parents? It's weird. <laughs> so they, like, yeah, so my parents are actually amazing and lovely. And I think for me, the whole thing with the parents is they are actually trying their best. So they're really good people. They just don't necessarily know what the, what the best thing is. And you know that Eddie's parents would love and accept him when he did make that when he if and when he does make that decision and so i never wanted to demonize them and actually that was another one of those notes you get where like the dad should be a bit more evil like he should be you know maybe he'll disown his son and that's the threat i was like no it's eddie's his own worst enemy his parents aren't bad they're a bit idiotic but they're not bad so so it was just getting the right people and getting people that are funny and warm and obviously there's nobody funnier than sharon horkin um and, and it was kind of weird getting her my agents sent her so I just literally finished the first draft, like I barely spell checked it. And my agents knew I want, I wrote it for Sharon. So she sent it to Sharon's agent because she knew her. And then literally a week later, I was in Soho having a coffee with Sharon going, I'll do what you need me to do. And I was like, what the feck is happening? And, and like, that was like, we hadn't even started development, like practically, you know, we were a year away from shooting it. But um, she was amazing. And getting that boost of confidence from somebody like her that early in the process is is huge for a filmmaker and having her name attached to the project is kind of incalculable in terms of going out to people with it um and then barry i was a huge fan of barry wars from all his work and you know he's he's got this charm and dashingness and uh, but yet a comedy that i think is really lovely um so we we, we offered him the role and he very gratefully said yes and he was amazing like he's such a nice man and he's so funny and and brilliant and they were so they got on really well together sharon and barry and yeah they were they were amazing together i think what you're saying there though the 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 idea of the because the dad is rather than the dad being sort of more vindictive because he's in the army and you know son must be in the army he's part of the collective confusion which is what do we do about homosexuals or what do we do if my son's homosexual, which is not just his problem. That's a, that's a cultural and traditional problem that he's facing. He doesn't have to be particularly vindictive about it. To No, exactly. It to be... And I think he, you know, he, and I think Barry does it so beautifully. I mean, he's suffering himself from kind of um, toxic masculinity. You know, he has his own baggage from his father. Um, and, you know, and he's, you know, 
he's a really nice man. He just doesn't necessarily know how to articulate himself. And I think that's a big problem for a lot of men and, and women. Um, and I think Barry just did it so well. I think he's such a, I just, he's got this, he kind of, he's like an old school Hollywood star. He's got some sort of charm to him. I just, I just love on screen. Um, but I, I, yeah, he was brilliant. I think they both brought some, and Simone Kirby, who plays Amber's mother, they brought so much to those roles. And I think, you know, they, they, you know, what I find really lovely is how many, how much parents of queer kids really identify with them now and are messaging and saying how much they felt their struggles and their, their journeys. Um, but yeah, I think they were, they're amazing. In a country like Ireland, you can be the most liberal parents, but you've still got the whole of Ireland to look at. So it's not, whereas a parent wants to say it's going to be all right. Whereas clearly they don't have, they can't, they can't feel as assured it's going to be all right because what do they know other than the country? Exactly. And I think there's that thing of, you know, in, in this, in Simone Kirby plays Amber's mother um, and um, Jill, and she's, you know, she's obviously very Catholic and, you know, she's grieving for her husband who has died, Amber's dad. But I think there's that thing of, you think because your, your parent is hyper Catholic that they will reject you. But actually, Ireland is great at that, like, exceptionalism of, like, well, if it's my child, it's okay, <laughs> you know, and, and separating these things. And so, of course, when, if and when Amber comes out, she'll love and accept her and she'll make that leap. And I think Irish people have always been great at that, you know, that, you know, they'll always make the exception for their neighbour or their child and kind of not necessarily see the massive hypocrisy with their church that they still love. Um and I, you know, and I and I think that there's something quite lovely in that ridiculousness. Um and you know, I, I, I think Simone did that so beautifully in the film. Because actually you don't know what's what way she's gonna go um with the knowledge of her daughter being gay. Um but um I I, I think she just she handled that so delicately and brilliantly. Well look, let's remind people then how and where can they see Dating Amber? So they can see Dating Amber on Amazon Prime um, and it's available now and um, it's there to enjoy and I don't believe it's anywhere else because it's a Prime original. It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on a Britflix podcast. No worries, thank you so much, it was fun. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.